Vincent Werbeck's Derby. We've had a great time. We took uh, about 120 of us away for the weekend and uh, had a, an amazing time together. Um, but we missed all of you a lot. So next time we're going to have to make a bigger venue, uh, go to a bigger venue so that we can all gather together and have some uh, community time and time with God together. Um, one of the things we did on the weekend away was we asked a few people to share some of their stories. We, uh, I just interviewed them a little bit, tell us a little bit about who they are and where they've come from and what they're doing and kind of what life looks like for them and what it's all about. And they shared their story. And I wonder what you would say your story is. I wonder um, if you were asked to come up the front and me to interview you. For some of you, that's like, uh, let me at it. And others of you, it's like, not a chance am I going near the front with a microphone. Thank you very much. But I wonder what you would say is your story. What is your journey that you are on? The Christian faith has quite a specific story, a story that some of us will know really well, a story that some of us might be new to or are still exploring, but there is a story, there is a narrative that we can all hang hooks on and get our heads around. I don't know if you saw, the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a tweet that kind of went viral. I don't follow this uh, Twitter uh, account myself, it's called the Atheist Forum, um, but what they wrote went viral. They said this. They were trying to have a go at Christianity, but they said, Christianity, belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, brackets, helpfully for the thickies amongst us, one light year equals approximately 6 trillion miles, close brackets, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. And the tweet, the tweet went viral because of the hashtag nailed it. Um, it's like, yeah, that is exactly the story that the Christians believe. That, you're not disproving anything in sending that tweet round. That, that we believe that there is one God. One God who's created the universe and everything in it. However many stars and light years and things that that might be. One God created all of that. And yet in the midst of that, that God draws near to you. That God wants a relationship with you. Theologians will call it the transcendence and the imminence, the, the greatness, the scale, the, the vastness of God. Yet he draws near. He is imminent and he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But of course, the Christian story says that although there's this God who's created the universe and everything in it, we have turned our back on God. We, in our rebellion, said, okay, God, you might have created everything and you know what it's all about, but we're going to do life on our own, thank you very much. We know better. And so we tried to continue our life like that. And that rebellion, that sin, is what separates us from God. It's what separates us from each other. 
And it's what separates us and causes a fractions within our relationship with us and the natural world. Because we decided in all of our wisdom that we knew better than the Creator. And so we walked away. And so God was left with a problem, this creation, this humanity, this, these people whom he loved and wants to draw near to have walked away from him. And so God thought, I need to do something to bring them back into relationship with me. And the only way that that was ever going to happen was through the sacrifice of himself. That God put the fullness of himself to dwell in Jesus, his son, to send Jesus to earth, to live amongst us. To breathe, to walk, to laugh, to cry, to eat, to get hungry and to sweat amongst us. To live, to how he cared for those people on the outside. Those, to how he showed forgiveness and love to people. How he um, engaged with people so he could be amongst us. And then we rejected God again. And we crucified Jesus. We decided once again that we know best and so we put Jesus on a cross and he died in our place. He died our death. But death didn't hold him as we've been singing. Resurrection happened. Life returned. He defeated death and so we can know God again. We can be in a relationship with him. We can have everlasting life. Hope, purpose, meaning, because Jesus defeated death. That is the Christian story. That is the message that I hope and I pray you have heard before. And if you haven't, that you may find love and meaning in the midst of it all. That God has created everything and he loves you so much that he came to die for you so he can bring you back into a relationship with him. That's the Christian story. We, as a church, have been going through uh, Acts, and we've been looking at the story of the early church. We've been looking at how that, that early church started to develop after Jesus rose from the dead. And we've been using this kind of paradigm, this understanding of like these ever-increasing circles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These ever-increasing circles. Because we have God, the power of God living in us. And so we've been tracking through the story in Acts. And we've jumped from various different bits to various different bits. And uh, last week, Andy finished um, in Acts chapter 16, I believe, with the verse, Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew daily in numbers. And my passage, the bit that I've got to talk about today, takes us through to Acts chapter 19, verse 20. In this way... The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Again, this ever-increasing circle. that The word of God, this story, spread. And people come to know Jesus. But there's a couple of things that are going on in this passage in Acts. Because Paul does something that is genius. He says one story and then he tells a different story. And he starts to translate those stories. Paul 
who by this point in Acts was Saul, is now Paul, and he's, he was a Jewish rabbi. He was a leader. He was a, um, in that world, and he encountered Jesus, as we read earlier on in Acts. And so Paul has this heart to go and tell the Jewish people the story of who this Jesus is. Because the Jewish story is slightly different from the Christian story. The Jewish story starts um, actually in Genesis chapter 12. For the Jews, the the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are absolutely crucial to their story and who they are. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, our same first book in our Bible, is the kind of uh, the pre-story. It's kind of setting the scene. It's giving uh, some context to where we go. And in the midst of um, Genesis, in chapter 12, we meet Abraham. Abraham, who enters into a covenant, into a relationship, a uh, promise with God. Abraham, even as an old man, you are going to have many children, many descendants. You are going to be the father of a nation. And in Genesis 12, we get this, I will bless you so that you may be a blessing. It's a top-line blessing for a bottom-line blessing. And so as this nation starts to form and we start to see people being bored and and, um, community forming, we get to this moment where Joseph, this dreamer, ends up in Egypt. And because of that and because of the famine, all of the Israelites, uh, the Jewish people follow him down into Egypt and then years go on and then they end up in slavery because the Egyptians are worried about this ever-increasing nation. And so really, the Jewish story starts in Exodus. In Exodus, we get this amazing moment where we meet Moses, this man who is uh, an Israelite who was taken in to live with uh, Pharaoh because of this miraculous moment of him being saved from a basket floating on a river. If you haven't read that, please read it. It's weird and amazing. And then when he sees his, his people being tortured by an, by an Egyptian, he decides to take matters into his own hand and he kills the Egyptian. And then people find out, and he flees for his life off into the wilderness. In the wilderness, he finds a wife. Strange place to find one, but he finds one. Uh, And then, because of the wife, he finds a father-in-law. And the father-in-law has sheep that need shepherding, and so Moses starts to look after the flock, and he learns what it means to care for others. And in that moment, we then get Exodus chapter 2, part of the Jewish story, incredible part of the Jewish story, Passover. Right, it's the start of Passover. It's where God has a burning bush moment and Moses steps towards this bush that is on fire that's not burning up. And God speaks to Moses and says to him, I have heard the cry of my people. I've heard their cry from slavery and now I send you to set them free. That's how God operates. He always hears the cry of his people, but he uses us to go and do something about it. That's how God works. And so we then move into this whole story of how that happens and now there's an increasing number of plagues and locusts and frogs and weird stuff and eventually we get to the Passover where the people of, uh, the Jewish people are literally passed over. They put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses and God passes over them and he does not take their lives. He spares them and because of that, Pharaoh says, go on, get out of here. Get out go. And so God then leads from, with Moses the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. 
And the story goes on. And as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this story of a, of a nation starting to form and to gather and to, and to work out what it means to be together and to do community and to live well amongst each other and to do what God is calling them to do. And they have good moments and they have bad moments. And they have good rulers and they have bad rulers. And they're kind of up and down and all, and this is how it all goes. And they take the promised land. But then they have the promised land taken away from them as others come and invade them and kill them, and take them off into exile, and this journey goes on and on and on. And in the midst of that, there are some prophetic words given that one day, out of the line of King David, the greatest king that Israel had ever seen, there will be a Messiah, a chosen one, an anointed one who will restore Israel to their true position because, of course, they think that they are just the blessed nation. They've forgotten. They've remembered the top-line blessing, but they've forgotten the bottom-line blessing. They think that it's all about restoring them to the place that they should be, their rightful place. But there are prophecies all the way through the Old Testament. I want to read some of them to you so you don't think that I'm just making this up. In Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, we read this uh, incredible passage about shepherds. And um, Ezekiel is a prophet and he's um, foretelling stuff in particular to the Pharisees who were the leaders of the religious time at that place. And he's saying, look, all you shepherds, you've, you've, you don't care for your flock anymore. You've ignored them and you're just about your own self and making yourself good and getting the good food and getting positions of authority. And then we read this in Ezekiel 34, verse 10. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will be no longer food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from the places where they were scattered. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. And they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. It's interesting, in John chapter 10, Jesus picks up this imagery and says, I am the good shepherd. He says, it's not, it's not you guys, it's me. And at the end of John chapter 10, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the time say, we're going to kill you, we're going to stone you. And Jesus is like, what are you going to stone me for? What miracle have I done that's upset you? What have I done? They said, oh, it's nothing about that. It's because you are blaspheming. You, a mere man, are claiming to be God. Jesus doesn't correct them and go, oh, no, I'm not. No, you got it wrong. Spare my life, please. He takes that because Jesus is fulfilling that Messiah prophecy. In Micah, one of the minor prophets, uh, Micah 5, we read this. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. One who is to come. And in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then if you've ever been to church at Christmas, Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of this is to say that the Jewish people, their story, their context, what they understood is that there was one person coming, an anointed one, a Messiah, who was going to fulfill all of these prophecies and was going to restore Israel to the place that it needed to be. Why do I tell you all of this? Because Paul was Jewish. And he was telling, he was talking to people who knew that story, who knew that context. And so in Acts, between Acts 16 and Acts 19, we read a couple of times where he specifically speaks to this. Acts 17, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, let's pronounce it like that, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. That was the message that Paul was giving. If you've been waiting for this person to restore us to the proper place, if you were waiting for someone to lead us, if you're waiting for God's chosen one and anointed one, it's Jesus. That's who it is. Jesus. Oh, but by the way, you crucified him. We have a problem. This is the story that Paul spoke. In Acts chapter 18, we meet a guy called Apollos. And when he went to Acacia, probably pronounced differently, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples that were there with him. When he arrived, he was a great help for those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. They picked up the context of their culture and they spoke into that and they proved that Jesus is the answer. But where Paul was an absolute genius, wasn't just speaking out of his context and his story, he was also able to translate it. If we flip back into Acts 17, um, have we got... Can we do Acts 17? If we can get this up on the screen, this would be great. Acts 17, verse 16 onwards. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, Greece, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So not Jewish. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what his, this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's where Twitter comes from. <laughs> Paul then stood up on the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant to the very thing I, you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served, sorry, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by rising him, raising him from the dead. No mention in here of a Messiah. No mention of a Jewish story. He just takes what he sees in the culture and the society around him and says, let me explain who God really is. You have an unknown God. Let me tell you, because I actually know who he is. It's Jesus. Let me explain who he is to you. Ah, oh, some of your poets, some of your culture makers, some of your culture shapers have used language like this. We are his offspring. Yeah, we are. Do you know what? We're, we're children of God. And so Paul is able to translate what was his Jewish story that he has been proclaiming to other people, pointing them to Jesus, and he picked up the culture of the time and he said, let me tell you who Jesus is. And so very simply I ask you tonight, what's the culture of our society? What is the story that our society is telling us? What are our poets Musicians, film stars, what's the culture that they're telling us that we need to buy? One of secularism, one of consumerism, one of look out for yourself. That's why we have panic buying going on at the moment. One of just consume, make yourself comfortable, keep it all in, gather for yourself. And that's why our world is at this point challenged. We have a city that we live in that on the whole is about 98% of the, this city do not know Jesus, don't go to church. They don't know the Jewish story. They don't know the Greek story. They don't know the Christian story. They just know the story that they've been brought up in in the context that they are in. And 
how do we speak into that? I think, um, I'm afraid, we have to talk about the coronavirus. I know for some of us, um, uh, we're bored of it, and it's kind of just being a pain. And then for others of us in this room tonight, we are genuinely scared. And our culture, that is the story that is going on around us at the moment. And how do we tell the story that is something different in the midst of it? And so I just want to take the next few moments to, to, just to discuss this amongst ourselves so that we can have some kind of sensible response and reaction to it. I want to um, ask Liz to come and join me. Good evening, um, everyone. Good evening, Liz. Come up here. Thank you. Um, uh, firstly, we want to talk um, from an expert's perspective, and I'm not an expert. I am a vicar. Um, whereas Liz, tell us um, what your day job is. Um, good evening, everyone. My day job at the moment is stay-at-home mum, but that's probably not why I'm on the stage, no. right? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, when I am at work, I'm a consultant in emergency medicine at the Royal Derby Hospital here. And one of the specialism, specialisms ah. that you've done... I love how you're proving your expert status here. It's brilliant. Right? Thanks, yeah. thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is around infectious disease. Is that yes, right? Yes, so um, my um, BSc was in medical sciences of paediatric infectious diseases. I was very, very excited when Phil said he wanted me to talk about viruses. I have promised to stop before midnight. It's all good. <laughs> um, so can you, can you explain a little bit about what the coronavirus actually is? Sure. Finishing before midnight? Yes. Uh -huh. um, so there are um, lots of different coronaviruses. Um, the, a handful of them produce um, the common cold. Um, that's what a common cold is. Um, some of them produce other illnesses in other animals. So there's a couple that um, cause um, cows to have diarrhea. Um, they're viruses. This one is new to humans, used to be in bats, it's made the jump, and so humans haven't seen it before, and that's why it's causing disease at the moment. Um, we'll get immune to it soon, um, but in the meantime, it's causing a few concerns. Not as many concerns, I think, as some of the fear is portraying, so some of the physical illness, I think, is not quite as bad as what we, our fears are telling us it is, um, and there's some very good reasons for that. Um, the large majority of people do not get ill or do not get very ill at all. Um, if you're 20 and under, good news is you probably won't even notice if you've got it. Um, that's really good news for the rest of us as well who are 20 and over because they can all look after us. It's great. Um, <laughs> Your kids else, are going to look after you. <laughs> it's going to yeah. go so well. <laughs> um, the... About 81% of people is the average, um, we think, of people who have mild disease. We're talking common cold territory. There are some people who get more moderate or more severe disease, and they are tending to get um, viral pneumonias. And it's really important that we protect those people who are vulnerable, um, people um, like myself who have um, very severe asthma, um, or people who are older and more frail. And so we are doing our best as um, a world, as um, a nation, to try and protect those people. Strategies are changing daily. That's not because scientists can't make up their mind. It's because they're acting on the latest evidence. So therefore, what should we do? Practically, physically. Yeah. 
So at the moment, um, best idea is to look after your mental health because the mental health is going to be the biggest problem here. May I talk a bit about fear as well? Yeah. Is that all right? So we are very scared of this um, for very good reasons. We have lived through quite a lot of years, history not being one of my specialties, as a um, human race by being scared of things. If we run away from things, we survive, and then we have children, and we teach them to run away from things too, and they survive too. Um, there are four things in particular that we can be very, very scared of that really get at our threat, our fear instinct, that get the adrenaline going. The first one is isolation. We're a social species. We, we need groups because that's how we used to survive. That's how we used to fend off the saber-toothed tiger, probably, possibly, if they were around at the same time as humans. I don't know. Um, isolation is scary. And we're talking about people being isolated intentionally. And that hits at our fears. Really closely related to that is the fear of making a social error. A social mistake previously might have led to isolation, which, again, was a problem. And all of the social rules just changed. We used to hug, and now we're not allowed to hug, and we used to shake hands, and now we're not supposed to shake hands. And what if we say something wrong, and what if we do something wrong? And social error and social anxieties are being hit at as well. The fear of the unseen. This is that same fear that I get when a spider runs at me from underneath the washing machine. The unseen threat, the um, ghost stories from haunted houses. We're scared of something that's unseen. We don't know how to protect ourselves from it. Um, and all of those are because deep down, 98% um, of this city don't have a belief in God and they don't have the promise of life eternal with him and they're scared of death. And that's what it all boils down to. People are scared, and quite rightly so, and understandably so. And so the way we protect ourselves best and the way we protect those people that we love and the way we protect our city is by addressing mental health along with the physical health. Um, be kind. Be kind to people. Be, um, demonstrate empathy when people are scared, even though you're not scared. Um, one of the best things I heard today was when a friend said, I would hug you right now. The only reason I'm not going to is because I know I'm not allowed to. If people are feeling vulnerable or upset, be kind to them. Be kind to yourselves. Call it out in yourself. I'm feeling rubbish today because, because I'm scared. Or because other people are scared and I don't know why I'm not. Or because people aren't acting the same around me anymore. So mental health is the main way we need to protect our, um, ourselves. Physical health, hand washing's good. Wash your hands, folks. Um, 20 don't, seconds at a time. Yeah, and don't just leave that with coronavirus. Just always wash oh, yeah, hands. Yeah. I mean, it's a general so, principle for life that we can all <laughs> We do. were emailing each other quite a, week, um, quite a lot this week, trying to sort of work out and, you know, strategy for coronavirus. And one of the Church of England guidelines at the moment is that before serving communion, priests should wash their hands this week. I sort of, I'm really hoping that's a thing all the time. Um, yeah. We do, um, it's all right. Cool, cool, thanks. Um, so washing hands. Um, if you haven't just this second washed your hands, treat your hands as dirty. Um, so we don't know yet how long coronavirus can live on surfaces and things. So this microphone was just touched by someone else. Sorry, Andy, nothing against you, mate. Um, 
And so now, after touching this microphone, I'm not going to put my hand to my face. I'm not going to touch my lips or my eyes um, or my nose. Um, so treat your own hands as dirty. Don't touch the top of your water bottles or food unless you've just this second washed your hands or used a um, powerful, strong alcohol gel. Um, keeping a couple of meters away from people if possible. Um, you are allowed to have contact with um, people in your own household. Don't isolate yourselves completely. Um, other bits and pieces, and not, yeah, not coming too close, not hugging, not um, shaking hands, and keep up to date on a reputable news source because responses are changing um, all the time about whether or not you're allowed to visit hospital, if someone's in hospital or not, whether you're allowed to visit your um, elderly relatives in care homes or not. That's changing daily for good reason because scientists are responding to the latest phase. Brilliant. Liz, thank you so much. There may be other people who want to um, grab you at the end, not actually grab you, but talk to you. From um, two meters And away. use yeah. your, and um, just ask for your expertise. Absolutely. Your um, I'll hang around for ages at the end. Do feel free, come and find me. I'll answer any question the best I can. Brilliant, thank you. Do you want to put that? You've touched it now. <laughs> Go and put it away. Fair enough. Um, I want to say a couple of other things about how we can respond to this. Um, and the first thing, as Liz was saying, you know, some of us might be afraid. And um, I think the first thing we need to do is, if we are, we need to be real about that. If we, if we are fearful in these moments, we need to take that to a right place. When I read the Psalms, I read about King David. Some of the Psalms are all kind of, everything's brilliant, everything's wonderful. Praise him on the lyre and the harp and all that type of stuff. And who knows what the lyre actually might be. But he's He's going for it. He's having a good time. There are other psalms in which David's like, Lord, smite my enemies. I hate this. I can't handle it. I'm in, I'm in torture. And he, and he vents at God. He absolutely goes at him. If you are scared, I want to encourage you to tell God that. I want you to take those emotions and those fears and, and go at God because I promise you, God is big enough to hear what you have to say. He's the God who created the universe and everything in it and however many light years and billions of stars there are. He will hear what you have to say and it is in that moment when we get to express those concerns and those fears that we find peace. I know as a dad, the most annoying thing is when my kids come to me just kind of crying and moaning and I keep saying to them, tell me what's gone wrong. What is the problem? I can't help you unless you tell me. God is your heavenly Father. Who, if you are scared and you're concerned about this, go to God and tell him what you really think and find some peace in the midst of that. In 2 Timothy, we read this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And so if we are scared, we take it to God, but then we live out something that is different. Our world is scared and anxious. We can be telling a different story in the midst of that. We can be living out of love and power and self-discipline because we know a different story. And so what does it mean for us to uh, not live out of fear? I reckon it's a couple of things. Firstly, can we please be careful about what we put out on, what we put out on social media? What we tweet, retweet, Instagram, whatever it is. We don't want to just fuel this continual anxiety that's going out there. Don't make jokes of it. Don't make light of it. Let's be kind online because that's where people are actually going to now really engage even more so. 
So think about what you are putting out there. The second thing I think we need to think about is do not panic by. The early church, Acts chapter 2, they didn't go and buy everything up and hoard it all for themselves. They shared with those who are in need. When we panic by, the people who suffer are the vulnerable, the ones who really need the products, the stuff that they can't get to. So when we just hoard it all in for ourselves, other people struggle. Do not panic by. There is enough and there will be enough that goes around. Shop normally. If you need some toilet paper, buy some toilet paper. But don't buy up the whole shop's worth. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor. We actually now in this time, have a literal, practical, real opportunity to do just that, to learn exactly what it means for us to love our neighbor. One of the things that Anna and I are going to do um, tomorrow is we're going to write out a little bit of a card and we're going to pop it in through the doors of our physical neighbors, the people who live on the street with us. And we're just going to say, this is who we are. If you need any help, here's our mobile number. Do you want to join a WhatsApp group for the rest of the street? Should we connect with one another? Should we look out for each other? I know, I know the neighbors who live on our right quite well. I don't actually know any of my other neighbors. But this gives us an opportunity to care for them and to, and to connect with them. So whether it's your uh, hallmates, whether it's uh, the people you live in a flat with, whether it's the, your neighbors who live on your street with you, whatever it might be, we have an opportunity to care for others in a sensible, practical way. The most thing we, uh, best thing I think we can do, as Liz has just uh, suggested, as how we love our neighbor, is we can just wash our hands. We can make a commitment to caring for the others around us. Yes, we might not get too affected if we catch this, but other people might. So let's try and be someone who stops the spread of that by washing our hands. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. I'm not telling you to go and wash people's hands, but he did tell you to serve others. He set us an example to do that. Let's go and serve others around us. But we love our neighbor... Another way we can love our neighbor, sorry, is um, who knows what the impact of this will be on business. Can I encourage you when and where possible to shop local and to shop independent? The big companies are brilliant and they will come up with schemes and they will survive and they will do well. But it's those small businesses, family-run businesses, independent businesses around us who are probably going to struggle the most. So if you have the means and the ability to do so, please, can you shop local and shop independent to care for our neighbors literally around us? But the end of the sentence, Jesus said, love your neighbor. He then went on to say, as you love yourself. I think one of the things that we really need to do in these next coming weeks is to make sure that we stay healthy. Liz has talked about our mental health. Can I encourage you to think about your physical health? Because we know those two things are linked. Think about how much you sleep, what food you eat, the nutrition that you get. Go and do some exercise. Yes, you may not be able to gather with lots of other people, but you can go for a walk. You can even go for a run if you're keen. Exercise. Keep yourself fit and healthy. That will be the best thing that you can do for yourself. 
The other thing we may have an opportunity to do, I think for some people, life is going to get ridiculously busy. Our healthcare professionals, they're going to be rushed off their feet. But for a lot of us, actually, this is going to really strip back our lives. And we're going to enter into a time of quite a slower pace, something that we've never really experienced as a culture. We're always going, and suddenly we have to slow down, and there's not even football to watch. When I talk to people that I have the privilege of pastoring, a lot of the time I say to them, are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? And a lot of them say, oh, I just don't have the time. I'm running so fast. I can't, I can't. I'm so busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I've got to get to work. I've got to do this. We may now be given the gift of time. We may now have an opportunity to invest in our relationship with God in a way that we've never done before. And so I want to encourage every one of us, not only do we stay, we think about our mental health and our physical health, but what about the health of our relationship with Jesus? This is an opportunity to really pour in, to build some new patterns into our lives. And there is nothing like the old-fashioned evangelical quiet time. Find a reading app, a reading schedule. Get out a Bible app. Find some notes that might help you read God's Word for yourself, feed on it, and let that spur you to pray. One of the things I've been doing with um, my words group recently, I've been just saying, challenging to do three, two, one. It's really, really simple. Now, that is in a busy lifetime. You can extend this, but it's three minutes reading God's Word, two minutes praying, one minute listening to God. Three, two, one. That's six minutes. We will all have probably a lot longer than six minutes. Let's use this opportunity to invest in our relationship with Him. We as a church would love to say, we don't know whether we'll be able to meet like this next Sunday. Um, we will keep you informed. Please, as Andy said earlier, look on our social media, look on our website, stay on our emails. We'll, we'll communicate what we're trying to do. I think we need to look out for ourselves as a community. We need to ask those questions about the people that we know and love around us. But also, um, we're going to probably take some of this stuff and put it online. We'll probably start um, live streaming some things. Um, and I want to, we want to speak a message of hope in the midst of the anxiety that we're, is around us. And so if, if you find anything that we say helpful, if, um, can we ask you to share it and like it? That's not because we want numbers. It's not because we want our social media profiles to go up. On, it's because we want to give, the, we have an opportunity to speak to an anxious world. And in the midst of a crisis, people want to ask questions of faith. They want to know where God is in the midst of it. And we might have an unbelievable opportunity to share the story of what God has done in our lives to a world that needs so desperately to hear it. So be safe, be sensible, look out for others, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And let's be a hope-filled presence in our community. If you're willing and able, can I invite you to stand? I want us to pray. Um, we must pray in the midst of this and what's going on in our world right now. Um, 
there are a number of things that we can pray for. We want to pray for the, the, uh, that this disease, this virus will stop. Uh, we want to pray for protection. We want to pray for healing. Um, I think we also want to pray for all those who are involved in the healthcare um, world. Those who are going to be looking after us. Those who are going to be having to make decisions. Oh, one of the other things I forgot to say is, as Liz mentioned, be kind. Okay, so people are going to be making decisions, trying to work out what's best for us. They're doing their best. Let's not be critical and negative. Let's support them and be kind and be generous. And if you do have to phone 111, let's not get antsy because we've been on hold for a couple of hours before we got through to them. Let's be kind because they are trying their hardest. Let's pray for them. 